Welcome to another episode of the Vikingology Podcast. The art and science of the Viking Age. I'm CJ Adrian, thing one. And I'm Terry Barnes, thing two. And today we have another special guest, another subject matter expert who's going to be talking to us about... Oh, a couple of different interesting things. Uh, the Sterlinga Saga and um, sort of the decline of the Viking Age. You know, we talked a little bit in one of our other episodes about what caused the Viking Age. And now we're going to kind of bookend the other end of that and talk a little bit about what come, <laughs> had it all come crashing down, at least in Iceland uh, in the 13th century. So and that is recounted in the Sterlinga Saga. And so... Our guest will tell us all about all of that conflict and change. And we're going to talk about rocks, right? Yes. Did you see that? I did. We're going to we're going to talk about the greatest Viking weapon of them all, rocks. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I I thought you would enjoy that. I certainly smiled when I read about that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive in. All right. So. Welcome, yes, Peter Konechny for um, talking about, well, kind of the end of the Viking Age, but as some of our audience probably knows, I know they do, because I know some of those people, uh, that uh, Peter is the co-founder and editor of Medievalist.net, and so this is uh, the one-stop shop for all things medieval on the internet, the place to go. And uh, so um, he is joining us from where he works and lives near Toronto, Canada. So we've got an international thing going on here, as we often do. Um, but one thing I wanted to do before we started, because we all we are going to talk about the Sterlinga saga, and we and Peter is a military historian, and there's a lot of conflict and warfare in Sterlinga. So we'll get to that. Um, but just, um, you know, our podcast is Viking Age, and we have another episode about the causes of the Viking Age. And we've talked about, you know, contextualizing the Viking Age for our audience as far as like, all right, the time period we're looking at roughly what, you know, most scholars kind of consensus mid eighth century to around the year 1100. And yet Sterlinga is after that. And so we're talking about largely probably the 13th century, right? Yeah, we're kind of talking about that. Like, this is, you know, um, it's not the same of the events of the Viking Age, but a lot of our sources from the Viking Age come from the 13th century. Right, exactly. Okay, and then, um, so... And I have to say, you know, it, you know, it, there aren't hard and fast dates. I mean, I just gave those two, the sort of the beginning and the end. But I mean, we know that, you know, Viking Age stuff kind of existed a little before that and also after that. And I think this is very true when it comes to the case of Iceland, which is where the Sterlinga comes from, because they have their free state commonwealth in place, uh, and it's still there into the 1260s. So in effect, we could say that the Viking Age really isn't ending uh, until we get to that point for them. And so, um, and one of the things also that I wanted to kind of make clear for everyone too, is that, so the title of our podcast today is about, you know, why did Viking democracy fail? And a lot of times if people who know anything about Vikings, they're going to be going like Vikings and democracy, you know, it's like, this is kind of some brutal, savage warrior culture. What the heck do they know about democracy? 
But, you know, they have been written about in that regard with what they start there in the early 10th century with the all thing and and their parliamentary public assembly system and everything. And uh, Jesse Byock, the scholar uh, of Icelandic uh, Viking Age, has called it a proto-democracy. And I think if anybody looks into it, you can see those things in what they were doing. But now what you're going to tell us about is just that kind of crashing down, right? Yeah, this is like the kind of sad part of uh, where like a society uh, implodes uh, from the from the inside and you have to have a a huge change to what happens for Icelanders. This is like perhaps the most defining moment they would have until the 20th century, until there's a becomes an independent state yet again. Yeah. So, so, okay. So I mentioned that you are a military historian. And so I'm assuming that has a little bit to do with it, but why don't you tell everyone? So what is it that got you interested in Sterling? Yeah. Like, uh, so I, I've always kind of had an interest in military medieval warfare. Um, and I was kind of looking to see if we could find, you know, stuff related to the Vikings, uh, because, you know, we, there's people covered like Hastings and some of the stuff that happens in Norway um, but I was kind of like, well, you know, where else could they, you know, fight, right? And I was like, I got interested in the sagas, the you know, Njal saga, Egil saga. And it was really interesting. But I was thinking, man, I, I, I wish there was more warfare in it. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, uh, and I only had ten, uh, tangentially kind of seen like there was like, oh, there was a, some problems in Iceland in the 13th century. Um and so I didn't realize there was any kind of like military history to talk about, right? Uh, and it's something that really wasn't covered very much. So once I actually kind of opened up these kind of sagas, I was like really you know shocked to see there was actual battles that there was uh, a kind of warfare that's happening that nobody was kind of covering. So like I, you know, way way back then, uh, back in my earlier years, I like did a couple of papers on like. Uh, the Iceland and and warfare and I thought it was really really interesting is is something I still you know love to talk about so thanks for having me yeah yeah sure yes so we'll um um you you I mean you've been writing about this for a long time and talking about it as you said but you you did have something not too long ago on Mnet and so we'll put the uh, a link to that in the description so everyone can can get some more information about it I, I do want to jump in real quick and say I've never heard someone say that the Viking Age wasn't quite violent enough for them so <laughs> you know we went you know on this show we had uh matthew panessi who mm-hmm. completely ignored the vikings from the monastic standpoint to uh, now a military historian who's like ah you know they could have done more fighting yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you no know, it's funny like you know we have a lot you know a lot of sources we have like you know, like of wars in the 11th century they're really kind of thin right uh in terms of like hey i want to know more about tactics and strategy and recruitment and things like that and like you know how how people fought right and you know you kind of look at like you know something you might see in the anglo-saxon chronicle like it's a and the two armies went side by side and after much fighting uh and honoring uh you know th- th- this side was overcome right you know oh, i want to know more details. you know so <laughs> that was and, all the, yeah. Yeah. that's all the detail you get on that <laughs> yeah yeah like, you know and i want like so i want like Hey, you know, like, I, and like these sagas are a lot of fun for a military historian to like take a look at just because, uh, you know, Icelandic sagas are always fun to read. And when they're starting to talk about like, hey, how to actually fight each other, um, 
they it was really really fascinating and i remember you know people like uh, when i first kind of talked about it in in conferences people were like a little surprised and like ah, you know like iceland these aren't real battles right this isn't uh actual military history right you know this, this is everyone kind of had a, assuming this is just feuds right but i'm saying like you know when is it a feud you know a fight of a feud when you have like two thousand people on the battlefields right yeah you know, it's like, you know, what makes, what makes, you know, what's the difference between, you know, like, um, what you're seeing here in Iceland and what you're seeing in France at the same time? Yeah. That is something that struck me actually when I was looking at that thing that you just posted, uh, not too long ago. And that is, um, I even actually remember making a, a, like a written note about it of like, how many people are in Iceland at this point? And then I got down to where you said it's like 40,000 people or something because it just kept saying, and then they gathered these many hundreds of men. And then this guy gathered these many hundreds of men. And I'm like, I spend a lot of time in Iceland. There aren't even many hundreds of them there now, <laughs> you know? And so it was just kind of like, where are all these people coming from? And, you know, that, I mean, to me, that's, that that's, that's, battles that's fighting that's a lot of people yeah yeah like uh, you know I, I once kind of did like a little calculation i think if if you compare like iceland's population with uh, say uh, you know medieval england like 1066 right mm -hmm. you know how much how much of a percentage of the population would be there it would be like if it was compared to england it would be like a it would be like a hundred thousand people showed up to the battle of hastings just yeah. on the english side right <laughs> yeah yeah right. uh so like this is this is something that takes a lot of the population, like if you can sort of, you know, this is representing every man, woman, and child, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, er, you know, I'm sure like, you know, er, do you remember being at the Battle of Orlingstadter? Yeah, yeah, we were all over there. So. <laughs> yeah, we all, everyone in the country gathered. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a, it's not a battle anymore. It's just a, it's just a family reunion. Just, yeah. yeah. Well, Iceland or, does have that app, you know, about you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You can, you can uh, swipe and see if the person you're about to date is uh, actually one of your cousins. <laughs> so, well, I mean, Peter, this is another reason, though, I'm saying um, that it's it, it makes me think of that it's more about the end of the Viking Age in Iceland because of the way, you know, what you just mentioned there about uh, or the word you just said with recruitment. Um, and as I was reading through it, you know, it, it's definitely the, the case that they're still doing recruiting in the same way that chieftains were doing recruiting in like the 8th and ninth century, right? Okay. I mean, this is band of brothers type stuff. These are the guys who are the farmers in your district. These are people who you tend to know in some kind of personal way. So it's, it's very um, informal in that regard, right? Yeah, I think reputation makes a big difference, right? Uh, where like this is... You know, we've uh, built up relationships, but this person is the honorable person and we need to support him. Uh, and you have the challenges where people are torn between, you know, uh, supporting one side or another. And they have, you know, family members on each. Right. Uh, and who, who do you want to do? And so it's it's a real interesting challenge on like, you know, how the logistics of bringing in people to a place to fight and conduct campaigns. So what, uh, other than these numbers, what kind of things surprised you when you read into this? They, uh, well, I, I guess like, you know, like we should lay it out, like, you know, how Iceland is, right? Like, um, you know, this is a country, you know, like it's still in the 13th century is very much as it is in the 10th century, which is, is kind of a, a collection of farms that are spread out 
along the really around, around the coast of uh, coasts of Iceland, right? There's no cities in Iceland. Uh, there is no, no, not even what you would consider a village. Uh, you just have uh, one farm and then you would have another farm uh, down the valley uh, and maybe another farm down the valley and, and so on. Uh, you had, you know, a, a couple of places, you know, uh, you'd have some places that have churches and there was two bishoprics on the island, but these aren't uh, major places. There's a, a handful of monasteries that exist, uh, but this is a very much like uh, rural and completely rural area. So you don't have any kind of massive sense of like a community, like in that sense, like you don't have people just living together and, and coexisting. You just have, uh, you know, isolated places where, and then these people have to gather and meet up every one, you know, every year or so at like the all thing or at other meetings. Uh, so it's just a, that's a very big dynamic and so different from like every kind of other kind of medieval warfare I kind of see. Okay. Well, maybe um, talk about some of those differences in more detail. They, uh, oh, like, uh, you know, when we look at kind of the battles, uh, say like if you do the campaign, uh, you know, you had these kind of, uh, the leaders would kind of recruit people uh, from the kind of local area, but they recruit family members as well, uh, and the retainers, uh, they would bring them into a kind of a campaign, and then it would be a, have to be a very quick campaign, because they just didn't have supplies, like they didn't have, you know, food to kind of, uh, you know, uh, base to kind of like have a march and stuff like that on, so it's basically whatever they could capture along the way, um, but they would. Uh, their aim was to go and raid, uh, like another of the enemy's farms, or one or two, and see if they were always kind of hoping to capture or uh, corner some some of their enemies. But if they couldn't do that, they would have to kind of uh, go go and farm. And people could get away fairly easily in Iceland. Like in Iceland, if you see someone coming, it's like, hey, I think I'm going to run off to the glacier. They they uh, go hide in the glacier. Oh yeah, I, we had a few things like yeah, people like they you know they headed overland to like you know areas that you know you could you know wander off and like be in like no man's land uh, and and hide away. So um, so it was always very hard. So you do have a, like kind of like a lot of this kind of like low level kind of raiding farming uh, that that is happening. But you know, as there's some cases where they're able to recruit quite a lot of people. And actually meet uh, another force on the battlefield, uh, and a battlefield just happens to be someone's farm. So, and we don't have any castles. We don't have any defensive structures uh, whatsoever. Like your the, the the best defenses people have are the actual house or a small wall, which is usually there to keep out sheep. Right? You know. Yeah. They, you know, you don't, uh, so you'd have that. You'd have churches as well, which play an important role in some of these battles. Uh, but you, you, you have these descriptions where, like, it's like these people ride up, uh, the, to one farm. The other people are there waiting at the farm for them, right? And, uh, they go off and they, all right, look at, uh, they have to kind of like get ready and just, like, they'll know each, each other's coming for a battle. It's not like there's no one being surprised. So, <laughs> they're like hi <laughs> yeah. so so like, before, yeah. go ahead 
I was going to say, before we get too far into the weeds of the mechanics of the of the battles, um, I would like to, for our audience's sake, kind of paint a picture of where, where we are in time. And and uh, so with the St- uh, Sterlinga saga, we're talking about roughly between 1218 and 1274, right? If I remember correctly, somewhere in there. Yeah, um, the, uh, th- that's kind of the events. Uh, like, I think the saga kind of covers events from like the 12th century on. Uh, mm-hmm. The Sterling Saga is is actually a compilation of a bunch of different sagas that have uh, a particular person has gone in, edited, and kind of put them together in a, a specific order to tell his tale. Uh, but they were all kind of roughly written in the 13th century. Uh, so they're very kind of contemporary to the, the events they're talking about. Uh, but yeah, we, you know, um, so Iceland at, at kind of this stage... Um, you know, we, we still have the all thing. We still have, like, there's no uh, no ruler of Iceland. Uh, uh, this, every kind of, uh, there's no, uh, citizen is not the right word, but, like, every kind of landowner has rights. Uh, every And they um, have a say in the local politics. They could go to the all thing. Uh, they could make a case. They could you know, follow laws. But we don't have any kind of things like a government. Uh, we don't have any like authorities to punish, say if you're a criminal, like there's no one send, sending out a police force to get you. There's no one building roads or, you know, or even say protecting borders, anything like that. Um, right. It's kind of like uh, an Icelandic version of the the League of Nations, right? Where, we have chieftains Gothi who unite to discuss the issues of the overall island. If someone's at behaving out of line, they get an angry letter. But there's really no authoritative or like there's no there's no authority or anybody who can enforce. You know, say it's kind of like a mutual agreement between everybody, a gentleman's club, if you will, uh, as opposed to the government, the types of you know de- democratic governments that we have today. So we have at the end of the Viking Age the all thing. This, if we can call it peace between the different, you know, petty chieftains in the article, you mentioned that they're called Gothi, right? Uh, and and so as we approach the 13th century, uh, I'm curious to know what what was the what was the what themes were happening in Iceland at the time that then brought the entire island into this state of civil war in the 13th century where they started fighting each other, where we're presumably, and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the understanding that I have is before this period, they weren't fighting on that level. There wasn't, there wasn't the same continuous conflict. Yeah. The, like we all can like read the Icelandic sagas. There's always like smaller conflicts, you know, that at, at the very worst would engulf a neighborhood, right. Or a little small region for a short, short time. Uh, but I, what I kind of kind of see is as we get into the twelfth uh, century is we get like this concentration of kind of wealth and power uh, between a, a few of these Gothi, the these chieftains. Um, part of it is just uh, like an accumulation of time, right? Because like, you can almost like can imagine like when Iceland gets settled in the tenth century, everybody that's coming there is probably poor. You know, there's a couple of instances where there's a, a, a Norwegian noble or like someone from the Orkneys that is wealthy is that, that comes over and settles the place. But in general, like these are all kind of very poor farmers 
that don't really have very much, right? But like over the time and centuries through marriages, through uh, being able to buy other farms, through um, just luck in some cases, um, certain families get more and more powerful. They get more and more wealthy. Uh, one of the uh, uh, helpful, inst- one of the instigators is also the church. Um, you know, the, they're becoming a more presence. You know, like Christianity arrives in Iceland in the year 1000. It's, it's, uh, there are actual like churches and who can, who can, the only people that can really build them are these kind of chieftains. They're the only ones really can afford, hey, we're going to build a, a church on my land for everyone to go to, uh, in the neighborhood. So the chieftains get have by controlling those churches. They also control the tides that come in. So they're actually getting. uh, I don't think I don't know if they're getting actual money, but they're getting resources. Uh, So these are things that are kind of coming in. And so you have a point where like about six major families have kind of emerged towards the end of the 12th century. Uh, They and just like and they kind of have the kind of different areas that they seem to control. you you kind of see like the kind of first kind of echoes of conflict happened just early into the 13th century where there's a, a bishop one of the bishops uh, uh his name is goodmund aronson he he gets the bright idea that he should help the poor they and he he, he wants to set he can basically tries to kind of set up charitable things that so like poor people throughout iceland are kind of coming over to be in like his area and this actually annoys chieftains because these aren't people that are working uh like uh, as you know for for the chieftains for nothing these are people that are like uh, finding a different way uh so you can you can see how the chieftains are like no we you know we don't want that it creates some sort of tensions it leads to actual um a battle uh one major battle like in i think in 1202 uh, the bishop actually wins, but after like another year, he has to you know, force to flee Iceland. And like, I always kind of find this is really surprising. Like, you know, Iceland, like the 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 churches kind of run out of town unless they're uh, unless they're big supporters of the of these uh, of these chieftains. Uh, while you know, you go back to England, you have you know, King Henry the Second has to. You know, kowtow to uh, the dead, uh, his dead friend uh, 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 Cromwell. <laughs> so they uh, and and you, you can so even here, like it, it, you have these chieftains that are, are, are amassing power, and they're using it to. When you have that power, you can use it to, you know, force. Uh, forced against your 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 opponents right like uh um you know one good example is like when you go to the all thing and they're, they're trying to make a piece of there's like some sort of conflict right uh these they, they go there to kind of negotiate and, and come to agreements and uh, make kind of a piece but if you're a chief then you can come in with all your men and all your resources and basically force your opponent to submit to your to your to your demands. Um, they, uh, I, I, a couple on a couple occasions, I remember it's like these chieftains said, "Well, the only agreement I'm going to make is if you uh, agree to whatever I say as a, as a deal, right?" And they're forced to, and then they're like, "Okay, we're going to take like you know half your farms now." 
we're gonna and we'll uh and we'll leave you with nothing that that's that's the deal we offer we leave you just with your lives so this is really interesting because it, it sounds or feels to me like an extension of the last episode that we did with dr david zori where we talked about chieftains and and the distribution of power in iceland he explained to us the the importance of of feasting, which is controlling certain resources within the community. And one of those resources was the church on the land where he, the chieftain could collect both tribute from the people on the land and the tithe through the church. And so people could take positions of power in that manner. So it sounds like the, the distribution of power in Iceland changed with this consolidation with chieftains who are seizing power, not only with neighbors and other farm farming communities, but also with the church and the allocation of certain resources income like a tithe right so and then and then it just boiled over into the consolidation of power then created a couple of main players who then were vying for ultimate control of the island yeah you fighting which kind of starts in the 1220s uh it doesn't really start until these chieftains are starting to go after each other right like they've they kind of assumed a lot of control of their own little territories, but they at some point just wind up butting heads with their uh, other chieftains. And, you know, it's things like, hey, I want to take control of this inheritance if, or, you know, I, I want this particular farm. Or it may just be that their underlings uh, somehow get into a dispute and they have to kind of support their underlings. And that, that uh, you know, and that kind of leads to the conflicts within these groups. So, so as a as a medieval warfare historian in particular, uh, is Iceland are is this is this theme echoed elsewhere in the medieval world around the same time? This this uh, concept of the consolidation of power then creating uh, actually being the the driver of conflict. Uh, it, it can be because like you know, like everywhere else there are kings, right? There are states. Uh, and the estates will get into conflicts. Like, you know, we could, you know, look at like England and France, uh, like they're fighting it out over Normandy. Uh, you know, so we, we have these kind of conflicts and these ones just happen. They're kind of on a smaller scale. Uh, but they, you know, it's the, the age old, you know, uh, reality of, you know, people wanting power and, and wealth and they have to take it from somebody else. Uh, and authority and, the 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 weird thing with Iceland is that you don't have a state, right? Uh, you don't have these institutions uh, there. You have just people with wealth and power, uh, and they don't have any. They don't have anything like backing them. Like these, you know, like uh, Sturla Sigvatsson, like one of the kind of main players in this early time. Like, there's nothing. He has no title. He has no. You know, grand claim to what he what he has, like you know, he's I own these farms. That's all, you know. Like I have relatives, uh, but he doesn't have like, hey, I have some sort of legal right to other places. He can't go off and say to the church and say like, hey, write me uh, these uh, letters saying that I, that I should take control of these areas. Um, so it, it's it's more fascinating because like, when they start fighting, it's uh, it's so personal. 
So I want to back up just a little bit, though, and um, I probably we should have probably done this at the beginning, but just um, because we're saying Sterling a saga. I mean, Sterling, uh, just to give everyone a sense for those who don't know, I mean, this is based on the name of one of these powerful families. And some of our audience who are uh, Viking Age enthusiasts probably have heard of the historian Snorri Sturluson who wrote and lived until he was murdered in all of this violence we're talking about uh, in the early 1200s. And so, um, you know, and he was a chieftain as well. So again, like you said, Peter, you know, one of the families, half a dozen families by this point in time who are involved in this, uh, these problems. Um, And I think, you know, some of the stuff you were just remarking about with how they're acting towards each other. I mean, when I read about some of these stories, to me, it just smacks of like our modern idea of like a hostile takeover, you know, they're just like, we're, we're, we want your land and we're just going to muscle in and get it and good luck keeping it. And actually it, like oddly, you know, it's, it works out in their favor, like a lot, they end up just taking stuff yeah. from other people. So it's just open naked aggression and power grabbing like all over the place. Yeah, they they have no real justifications for what they're doing. Right. But there's nothing nothing to stop them, right? And that that is that is why a lot of people like even like you know, this place in Iceland, they see that this thing is failing. Like the you know the the all thing, you know, which is uh, people hope would be something to resolve this. What like people like certain leaders just didn't bother going. You know, said well, well, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to go. So we're not going to solve it. The church can't really step in because you don't have any real power. Like, the you know, most of the church officials belong to one family or another, right? You know, uh, the monasteries are are tiny in comparison. They have no real, you know, challenge. Not you know, like when we kind of like look at England, like, hey, you know, we can talk about like how influential St Albans was in in running things. You know, in Iceland, like I never hear what the monasteries do. They're probably just a handful of people, you know, in the cold somewhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's like everybody else. It's <laughs> comparatively speaking, it is still just a handful of people in the cold somewhere, like in the entire country. Um, but that, I mean, to me, that's also interesting. The part about, I don't know, it just kind of comes full circle to me because. At the beginning, in the early 10th century, you know, like you said, when they established the all thing, and this is, you know, their parliamentary body, their public assembly, their way that they're actually, you know, again, this proto-democracy thing that we introduced at the beginning, they're doing it explicitly kind of as a um, a way to reject what was going on back in Norway and the oppression that they were feeling at the beginning from say Harold Fairhair and things like that. Right. So these, these, these powerful ish chieftains kind of pick up and leave and go to do their own thing. They set up this completely different kind of governmental structure and they're trying to, at least on the face of it appears to do it in a way uh, to, to curb violence and then what ends up happening, like as as this story is unfolding that you're telling, by the time we get to the 13th century, then you've got chieftains who, through their advocacy at the all thing, which is what was a, a big part of their role, right? I always tell my students, like, to me, I think of chieftains in that time as like lawyers now, you know, these are the guys you want to engage with because maybe they can help you get a good settlement if you're in a problem with somebody else or whatever. But they got paid for those services and they increased their power and their prestige and everything through being successful in that way. And then it's ironic then that they turn around and they actually build and use that power to destroy 
the thing that they were kind of, you know, unique in creating in a, a better way to solve problems without resorting to violence, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think you look at the all thing in this creation, it's a society built on consent. Everyone consents. Yeah. Everyone has a has a piece of the pie, right? Uh, even if it's a small pie, like so, Iceland is like forty thousand people, right? You know, uh, everyone, you know, all well, everyone, all all males that are landowners, they, you know, uh, they they would probably still be in a number in the thousands, right? And each at, at a point, you know, the theoretically they all have a kind of a say, and they can all have influence. Um, it's by the 13th century, these kind of forces of capitalism really uh, have eroded away that where instead of having a couple thousand people that could work, you know, and together and they all have a little piece of the pie, it's, you have like six families uh, that have most of control and they don't need to listen to the all thing. They don't, uh, there's nothing to kind of stop them. Right. So they can carry on and, and it just, that leads to the conflicts. Nothing can hold these people back from fighting at, at a point. For yeah, lack of a better analogy, this, this sounds so much like the next great experiment in democracy, which was the United States after the United States gained independence from England and created the, the articles of confederation which was a complete disaster because the states all got complete autonomy if you will with no you know basically that was the 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 government they had in washington at that time or was it was it washington was uh or where that was that in baltimore mm -hmm. i can't recall but anyway as it was we'll say as washington then if somebody watching is an american historian they can correct me in the in the comments but but uh you had the situation where you had this government in washington that had absolutely no authority to enforce any of the rules. It was all by consent, kind of a similar idea. And so, of course, the states started levying uh, uh, taxes on each other for trade, right? And and then fight squabbling with each other. And then it got so bad that then you had this this force of of rebels, Shays Rebellion, that decided to march on Washington and take care of the whole thing, you know. And so it's it's to me there's there are similarities here where when we're talking about the all thing is just being this this group uh that only works that come together to discuss issues and it only works by consent and then as you know and then because of human nature we're all trying to get the upper hand on one, one another and so it in, invariably will lead to conflict without and that's why at the end of the article of the confederation they had to call the constitute the constitution convention and hence federalism was born right because if we left the states to you know govern themselves and play nice with each other they They'll wouldn't. beat each other up. <laughs> yep. 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 Exactly. As as Ari Thorgelson said, if we you know if we tear apart the law, we tear apart the peace, right? We can't you know right. if we're gonna if we don't try to like get on the same page and have some sort of consensus about how we're going to act and solve problems, we're just gonna ruin the entire experiment. You know, you could also look at other similarities in Italian city states, say mm -hmm. the like say 14th century. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of them. Are, there are governments where a lot of, you know, the guilds, the leading merchants, quite a lot of people that live in the city have a say in that government, right? And they can, can continue on, but they may, for like reasons like of politics, 
start fighting amongst themselves. But there was also be, you know, times where the their challenges they face just prove too hard for them to work together as a community. And they often turn to like bringing in the dictator, right? Uh, You know, like uh, someone to, hey, you need to rule over us because we're facing all these problems and you need that single minded uh, determination. This one person to kind of, you know, take over things and run things. You know, democracy is a messy thing, right? You know, it's everyone has needs their opinion. Everyone needs their say. Everything moves slowly in a democracy. Uh, that's uh, that's that's one of the big faults of it. And then people are like, hey, uh, it's not moving. Change is not happening quick enough. Let's listen. Let's bring someone with an iron fist to control things. That well, is ultimately that funny. happened in in Rome and Greece. I mean, I, th- I feel like this is repeated often. You know, in yep. history. Yep. Because uh, the Romans who then went from being a republic to then an empire with an emperor who's the strong man to reel everybody in, or even the the Athenian, or sorry, the Greek city-states, right? We're all going to be nice to each other. And then, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah, but I mean, modern history, my God, Nazism, Mussolini. I mean, all of those people were like, we're utterly destroyed after World War One. We need somebody who can make promises and keep promises. And, and the, the strong man, you know, perfect entry point all throughout history. Mm. Yeah, you know, a democracy requires a lot of people to, you know, it requires the entire population to really believe in it, right? And once people don't believe in it, A, because they're not, they don't think they're getting uh, uh, justice through it, or they think there's a, it, it, they personally achieve more through a different method, uh, that can, that can break down democracy really quick. And that, that's, and that's why I kind of see that happens, say, you know, in like Florence, you know, at times uh, where like, you know, it goes from like a, a city state to being ruled by the Medici. They, uh, and then, you know, so in here in Iceland where, you know, you have a system that theoretically, you know, every farmer should have a say uh, becomes one where nearly every farmer is just following the orders of, uh, of someone else. Well, actually, with with Viking Age history, though, I mean, this is not even unique because at least according to the Russian primary chronicle, this is what happens with the Kievan Rus and the beginning of that polity over there is supposedly, I mean, it's not a democracy thing, but it's it, it's a bunch of, you know, native, you know, clans or whatever that are squabbling with each other. And so then they appeal to the Varangians to come and like send somebody to like, lead us or rule over us because we hear you all live according to the law so it's like people just even if it's not a democratic type of experiment it's like people get to the point where they're just sick of conflict right and so then they're like somebody come and like bring the iron fist and bring some stability i do love that story though because to me it smells of self-justification on behalf of the varingians right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, they, they were so disorganized. They invited us. We were invited. Hey, they didn't write the Russian primary <laughs> chronicle. <laughs> no, but their descendants did. And the ruling class remained, you know, descendants yeah. of the Varangians, right? So, I mean, it's the winner. The, 
to the victor go the spoils, right? And and the version of history. So I always, for me, I always think of the of, of that as you know that what was it uh, Rurik, Truvor, and Siniad or whatever the three brothers. Yeah, and that, that was a hostile invasion. I mean, that was that was you know the anyway. But yeah, but I I, I see the parallel though because that it, that was their justification was the squabbling, the infighting. There was no structure. Yep. There was no government. Just mm-hmm. like uh, Peter, to your point, in Iceland at the time, there was no state. Yeah. So there was they, no organization. Yeah, I, like that, Iceland's Commonwealth. This, you know, what we call the Commonwealth period lasts over three hundred years, which is you know remarkable. Yeah. You know, and I think part of it is like Iceland never really faces any kind of threat from the external. Like no, no one is sending a fleet to Iceland to take over the country. Like uh, they, uh, they don't have that kind of threat. Uh, so, and that's usually, you know, what kind of forces a state to, you know, kind of give up on like a pluralistic government and is that they f- fear some sort of outside enemy. Or at least it, in order to like start convening what, what, you know, resembles a military <laughs> for defense. Yeah. Well, so now yeah, that brings yeah. up a good point at the end, because isn't at the end of the Sterling Saga period, so the end of the 13th century, that's when the Norwegian king gets involved, right? Yeah, like if we, we're running to the end of the story, you know, um, it was there was a lot of talk, even as this is happening, that Iceland would be better if we had a king that could like oversee things and establish authority. Uh, the only thing king they can think of at the time is the king of Norway. Uh, Nor, you know, that's the, the kind of direct connection by sea uh, is from Norway to Iceland. A lot of these people uh, are have yeah, connections to Norway, and the king of Norway himself, Hakon, uh, can't Hakon the Third, I think. Uh, he 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 he's pushing this agenda, right? He he wants it, and he, he's getting involved in Icelandic politics uh, first by supporting different families, like you know, like like Snorri Sturluson. You know, he he goes to Norway, he lives there for a, a while. Yeah, yeah, you know, he. Uh, when he's living there, he's living under the king's dime, right? Uh, uh, they uh, and this happens quite a quite a bit, right? Like there seems to be a, like an endless amount of people that are going and staying with the king of Norway for a little bit uh, and getting his favor and getting his support. And uh, you know, one thing like you know, Iceland probably doesn't have their monetary economy is probably terrible. Right, they can't. They don't have anyone. They, no one makes money like mints money on Iceland, uh, but there's still a need for that. Like, or you know, they they still need for like say trade goods from outside. Uh, you know, it's not just a barter economy. So, like the King of Norway can supply money, uh, which is a really big thing. They and you know his he is trying to he is trying throughout this period to get somebody that will at least be his kind of voice in Iceland. Uh, and uh, towards the end, uh, like he is able to get, uh, you know, he's get, get like kind of the kind of leaders to kind of all uh, fall, fall in line, right? To him, uh, where he can make one of them the like Duke of Iceland almost, right? And then, uh, but the people generally they have uh, over a, a couple year period between 1262 and 1264 they actually vote and they accept a new law that makes 
the king of Norway, the king of Iceland, in its essence, and imposes a new law. So was the Norwegian king instrumental in sort of stoking the fire of some of this conflict in order to be able to exploit it for his own, you know, being able to finally come in and be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start the fire so that I can be the one who comes in and puts out the fire. Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to kind of read through more because like I, I can see it both, right? Like he obviously has, he has his agenda. He is successful. Uh, but it's not like the King of Norway is coming to Iceland. It's not like, he is sending any military resources to Iceland to impose as well. Like, uh, he is the one thing he has going for him is that the church, the, like uh, church officials see this, this is a good thing too. Right. So, uh, so the bishops, you have to remember the archbishop, uh, like, uh, the bishops of Norway, uh, bishops of the two bishops of Iceland are un, are theoretically under the uh, auspices of the uh, Archbishop of Norway, right? Uh, or uh, one one of the archbishops in Norway. So um, you have those kind of church officials saying, like, "Hey, you know, you know what you really need is you need a king. You need like you need the system like we have elsewhere in Europe, right? That that makes sense. What you have is is wrong. So uh, so like there's this constant kind of peer pressure." You know, influence, um, but it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't have succeeded unless Iceland had gone to so much trouble on their own. Oh, blame the victim! Come on, <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> they were having a good three hundred plus year run. You just said it, like oh. I, mean, I know they did. Like we have to, you know, like this is a society that runs a long time, and you know, like by our standards, is really successful. Uh, and it's it's really sad to see it really collapse into you know wars and some really vicious um, feuding, right? Like you know, one of the main characters is Geezer uh, Thorvaldsen. You know, he he's one of the chieftains. You know, there like he seems to be at like a high point, and then he has a wedding uh, for his one of his daughters at his house. Uh, his enemies take advantage of that to attack, like, the night after the wedding. Uh, they set fire to, like, they surround it. Like, uh, they catch him unawares. They uh, set fire to the place. Uh, Gizor uh, escapes by jumping into a vat of whey. Uh, but, you know, like, you know, there's his family burns up. Like, there's, a like, a really heartbreaking scene where, like, uh, his retainers bring him the remains of his wife and daughter. Like, you know, here, here and here is your, like, this bone, this, this bit of charred bone is what your wife is, you know? And like, like, uh, I think it's something, it's certainly, it's certainly something, it's one of those scenes like, oh man, that's tough to read, you know? Yeah. So, well, you know what that is? That's straight up Game of Thrones, Red Wedding kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's, that definitely is. And like, and like, so Geezer goes like on the warpath for the next couple of years, uh, but never really able to, you know, get like everyone that he wanted to. So like, he, he, even him, like, you know, like he, he could just see like, you know, this system we have is not working. So for the mechanisms of fighting, um, CJ and I were like over the moon, so happy to read about the fact that there were lots of rocks being thrown <laughs> in this fight. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one fun, like the this fun part of warfare is like, this is, 
you know, it's not like kind of warfare you see on the medieval European continent with knights on horseback and archers and, uh, you know, a military structure, right? Like you basically have farmers that, you know, that are being brought. They do not know how to fight, like, and they don't want to die, right? Like, um, so a lot of the fighting almost has this kind of, ceremonial quality right like because if you you know people grab rocks from the ground and toss them at each other and that's like seems like all the battles seem to have that you know like i i always kind of reflect that that's really not like a a harmful war of battle like you know the people can get killed you can like a rock can come and hit you but in general you know you know people can you know stay behind they can you know stay safe in that kind of a, a, a battle it's you are you're fighting, but not exposing yourself to that much danger, right? Well, the first guy in your timeline, what? Colbin, whatever. Like, yeah, he does. Yeah, he's from a rock. He gets hit by a rock and dies. There are cases, but like, <laughs> like, like these Icelandic battles. Uh, you know, the the bloodiest battle has 110 people die on the battlefield, right? Uh, which is not a lot, you know, like, you know, compare like there are medieval battles like that too, but, um, you know, if you're like a low level soldier, you know, there's a, there's not much in it for you to gain. Like, you know, there's no, that, like, you know, you can, you know, strip the booty of somebody else and maybe take that, but you're not, they're not taking each other as prisoners. Like if generally, if you were captured, uh, and surrendered, you know, all right, just go home. You know, like that's 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 your job. You know, that's all you can do. It's um, the fighting is almost aimed at trying to get at the leaders themselves, right? Like it's like, hey, there's Sturla, go after him. Uh, you know, we're gonna, you know, send a, uh, send the people to go after him directly. And Sturla only has like a few handful of men that kind of that will really want to stay and guard him till he dies, right? There's a lot more people that like. Hey, I'm protecting you. Oh, wait, they're coming. I think I'll run away. So. Actually, that reminds me of too of, of reading about um I think it was in your piece about um getting a sanctuary in the church, mm -hmm. right? In the church chapels. Okay, so I've been to several of the recreations of those things in Iceland and then also know of, you know, excavated ruins of those things. Those structures are tiny. I mean, literally like a room, like I'm sitting in here, you know, like US feet, you know, maybe 10 by 10 or something. And so, and, you know, I, I thought when I was reading that, it's like, no way everyone's getting sanctuary in the church. So they must be just putting the leaders in there, I would imagine, right? Yeah, like uh, right after Orlikstadter, the, the biggest battle is Orlikstadter. Uh, they, about 30 people go into the church uh, at, at the end of the, of the losing side. And it, um, the enemy uh, surrounds it, and and basically at this point there's a negotiation. Like uh, like the we only want you know these people. Uh, we we only want these people. The rest of you can leave if you want, and that's what happens. Like uh, where they like they don't want to storm the church because it's sacrilegious, and like you know these are you know. No, uh, normally Christian people, they don't want to, you know, risk God's wrath. But at the same time, they're not going to let the other people get away. So, um, so you wind up, um, you know, 
saying, "Hey, you know, you and you and you, uh, you can get, you can, you can leave. We won't harm you. Uh, you, I know your cousin. Your your cousin is here on my side. He is vouching for you. Make safe, right? And it winds up there's like only four people left, right? You know, this and it just." All right, you might as well come out now because we're going to execute you. You know, uh, there's nothing that's going to save you, and they they do. They like uh, they they walk out, and then there are beheadings. So, like on the church doorstep, more more or less. Oh, jeez. So I wonder <laughs> around this time, you know, how much of so our conversation with Rainer Oskarsson and William Short, for example, we talked about the the topic of Dringer, which is you know your good name essentially, and. Or I, is that right? It's like a, you're prow, almost like a prowess. And uh, this idea that, you know, uh, they had the glima, which is the, uh, you know, um, barehanded or unarmed fighting. So there there was like, um, as far as my understanding goes, is based on that conversation um, with William and Rainer, there was a there was a, a warrior culture present during the Viking age. I don't know how far that extends. I mean, I don't know if that extends to the 13th century or not, but I'm wondering, cause we're talking about uh, an interesting dynamic here where, you know, as a, the chieftains are trying to raise troops, but they're not paying these troops. And so they don't have the same, like if I, if you go to uh, medieval France, for example, the Knights all know they're getting paid and then they get a split of the spoils. And part of the spoils is capturing other Knights and ransoming them. So there's not like a financial incentive to go fight for these people. Uh, so I, I wonder how much that cultural uh, phenomenon of Drengar, which is, the, you know, the, this idea of it's this honor bound warrior ideal, right? Uh, played into this idea, uh, played into this conflict, uh, thereby allowing it to escalate to the level that it did. Because if they didn't have that, then nobody would be fighting, right? I mean, ostensibly, I don't know. Yeah. That, I don't know that, but yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely elements like of a, being a warrior. Uh, you know, like none of these people go to war outside of Iceland by this period. None of these people are like, you know, sailing out to, you know, like uh, to Norway and then they're like, hey, let's go raid, right? So they don't, they don't have practice in warfare. Uh, that's why the, the war, these battles are so odd, right? Like, uh, but like, you know, there are some that like, hey, I'm going to die with my Lord, right? Like I'm going to, you know, keep, I'm going to fight it off. So you have these kind of men of honor. And then you have others that like, you know, just uh, you know, hang back, right? They're they're there because whoever their chieftain is expects them to be there, and you know, you can stay in the back, you know, because uh, these battles are often, you know, one small group rushes at another group, right? Uh, it's um, you don't uh, the the leaders are putting themselves on the line more or less right and and you have to be a good uh, you have to like lead from the front you know which is another reason why the like most of the casualties tend to be the higher ranking people right so that's uh but yeah yeah it's interesting CJ, you and I have been doing this long enough now that we're starting to become of one mind. Because as soon as you were talking about that, I mean, that's what I was going to say, too. It's like this idea that they in, engage in this kind of, to me, what that's coming to my mind is this scrappy sort of like almost like schoolyard kind of you know thing where groups of people get together and it's a big and it's a big intense and then it and then it kind of fizzles out and you got the little nerdy hangers on around the edges and you got the main proponents in the middle you know and maybe some you know damage gets done there but the rest of them are like 
okay, we see what's happening here. We're just going to go home now or whatever. But that, you know, the big deal for Viking Age culture writ large throughout is this whole sort of saving face, honor bound kind of thing, you know? So there's just a whole other impetus to it, I think. Yeah. Like the sagas are written in a, such a matter of fact way that it's hard to, to gain like people talking about honor as particularly like, you know, uh, you know, the sagas are, aren't, you know, uh, it, it, it has this bit of a dryness to it. Right. So you don't necessarily get like people's inner thoughts. Right. That you wish you like, you know, like so that sometimes you would get with, you know, uh, you know, history of William the Marshall, right. Where like you learn a lot about his way of thinking. Right. Yeah. Uh, here, you know, it's uh, you. You have people. We have lots of conversations, uh, you know, and reports on dreams and stuff like that. People have like, like dreams, like, hey, you know, it's, I dream something bad is going to happen to me tonight, today, like, ah, uh, you know. But uh, that's one of the things Sterling is known for, though, right? When you compare it to, like, say, the family sagas and stuff. Well, like you said earlier about the, the people who are actually writing it. Well, the one known author who was also a member of the Sterling family, um, that um, that these people are contemporaneous with the events that they're writing about, or at least know people who would have been contemporaneous. So there's living memory. And so the level of kind of social detail that is apparent in this particular saga is different than than the others. Yeah, yeah you know, one of the funny things, like when I, I kind of first you know, started reading this, um, the commentators of these saw, uh, this, of the Strolonga sagas I would say, wow, this is really unbiased stuff, right. you know, like, you know, and, uh, but now, you know, you, you, like historians have kind of more and more worked on it. And said like, no, like this was written for a particular purpose. Like this is to support a person's point of view, right? Like, and even this, this the way the saga is uh, put together, there is uh, like some thought in, into, you know, how it's being done. So that, you know, these aren't, the unbiased, you know, recollections, right, of uh, of like uh, of some sort of journalist, you know, the the these are things that are being put together with 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 thought in mind and how to st tell the story that favors certain people, like you know, Thor Kakali, right? Like he he comes, uh, you know, yeah, Thor or Kakali, he's like one of these heroes. He's like uh, Snorri's nephew, I think. So yeah, uh, yeah. you know, he. Uh, you know he you know he comes across like he's at, at, at one point this you know like has like two followers right like his uh, his clan has kind of been defeated um he's on the run you know uh, but he's such a good guy that people start just gravitating towards him you know like uh, people start coming and he starts winning the battles and um a very famous kind of battle on the sea like there's one naval battle in this uh, 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 where like you know both sides like uh, have collected ships uh, once and they're kind of looking. I, I don't know if they're kind of meant to. The the I think they were both trying to see if they could do a raid on each other's uh, territory, but they wind up meeting in the in the waters. Of course, they 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 piled their uh, ships up with stones so they can throw stones at each other. <laughs> of right. course, of course they did. Yeah. They, so did. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Thord Kikali, his side is this much smaller side, uh, but he's uh, there. They kind of fight to a standstill, but because Thord was 
uh, had the weaker force going into it. He is, uh, you know, he gets all the credits. Uh, and after a couple more years, uh, he's able to like win a major battle. And then for about a couple of years, he's kind of like the de facto ruler of Iceland. So he, you know, but you know, it, it, he's not able to hold on to it. But you know, he he, he gains that like and you know, like his honor is you know, and his abilities lead him to that but he's, he doesn't have the authority to you know, stay in power well i okay, think so that, going, go, go ahead go, going back to this concept of the uh of the mindset right the right we have a whole book here about the viking mindset um first of all i misspoke earlier the the ostir which is the that's the uh that's more of the prowess right so um uh and that's your or that's your good name right uh, anyway, I'm reading through this really quick. But your ostir, so say. But then the drenger is really it's that's the what what supposedly according to this book the Vikings are going for. But I'm just going to read a quick excerpt, and that's from Men of Terror. Once again, I refer to this book probably too often, but <laughs> uh, they talk about a, a drenger was quite simply a person who could be trusted, a person who could be counted on to death regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the odds. So you know, going back to this this question of of recruitment in Iceland at the time without those the same incentives as, as in other places. I think it'd be curious to do kind of dive into it from this this mindset point of view as to explain some of the behaviors that were going on at the time. Uh, again, going going back to some of these battles and the leaders and they're trying they're trying to get, you know, um Ostir, right? And then how they recruit people is through Drenga, right? Or something of that. And now I'm no expert on all these different Norse names and everything, but I do think that would be a really fun rabbit hole to go down for uh, someone who's motivated. <laughs> well, yeah, because of the guy that Peter was just talking about, that character. Yeah. I mean, the, the only way that, you know, at least as far as you know, most all the evidence that we have, you know, take it for whatever grain of salt you want. But like the way that this kind of recruitment happens again, I mean, this is very personal and very informal. And the only reason why somebody could am amass, you know, allegiance of any decent number of guys is because you have to have a reputation that precedes you. You have to be known as a go-to guy for several of these reasons that you're talking about, CJ, in order to get people to think that it's worthwhile to throw their weight in your you know, direction. Right. They, you know, I think, you know, reputation, you know, the, you can have a good reputation, but you can also have a really bad reputation, right? And like this, I always thought like this war, this, these fighting, this wars, these, it was really bloody, it was really dirty, right? Um, you can see it in these executions, right? That happened like on the battlefield, right? Um, there, like in some, there's just there's this glee in, you know, destroying another person, right? That you know that you might not get in like other kind of medieval warfare. Like you don't have, you don't have the honor, right? The honor comes, you know, like you know, the, especially like between people that are of their own elite class, and they they go off and they're like, let's not just kill the person but strip them and then use their weapon to you know you know they they take one guy's weapon they use it to kill his two sons you know just 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 for the heck of it right although that's not unusual right i mean other honor bound cultures like that i mean like medieval japan i think has a bunch of that kind of pretty 
vicious behavior because that's just about power and dominance, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's, but like, I could just see how, like, you know, people just like, hey, I, you know, I'm I'm going along with this so I don't die, you know. So I, you know, you know, I want to be, you know, it, I'm joining my side because I don't want to be, you know, either I'm with them or against them, right? So. So it's, you know, everyone, every farmer has to make their own case, right? Like, and like some people say like, hey, I'm, I'm going to stay out of this, you know? And there are some, you know, like there's attempts at, you know, some people want to be bro broking peace, but others, I think, just want to be on the winning side. You yeah, know, those, those dudes moved to Greenland. <laughs> They're like, yeah. we're out of here. Let's, oh, yeah. just, <laughs> let's just, let's just stay away. <laughs> Yeah, Greenland. That, that's a good. Uh, that's a good place. That seems. Uh, <laughs> what, what could go wrong in Greenland, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, I have to say, like with the, with, <laughs> with this saga, like you said, kind of at the beginning, you know. Now we've been talking for a, a over an hour or whatever. That you know, it, it kind of makes me sad because even when when I'm teaching this stuff to my students about like the beginnings of the all thing, to me it just seems like so like cool, right? And just so interesting and so counterintuitive for what we think of Vikings to be like, that they're actually going to make a, an effort to sort of be decent human beings and not resort to violence to always solving their problems. And it's like they managed to kind of hang on to it against the odds. And then like, this is what they end up doing at the end. And it's like their own dang fault. And it all just kind of falls apart. So like, there's that part of me that's sad about it. But then there's the historian brain where it's like, yep, and here we are again, just replaying another script that human beings just keep replaying on and on and on throughout time. You know, like I, I, uh, I did one trip to Iceland, and I was kind of hoping that, hey, I, I want to hear more about these, this part of the history. And I found it quickly that like that that is not something that is talked about in Iceland. Like they're very happy to talk about, hey, this is what the Njal and Egil and uh, Laxdala and like here's our saga and us settling. But you don't you don't get very much about hey how Iceland you know falls apart. Um, and even like historians, very little kind of histor uh, uh, bits of historians. Uh, have been covering this topic. It's just surprising, like, because it's such great sources. And uh, and even we know where some battlefields are, right? Uh, but, you know, this is something that, like, people, you know, I think for a reason is that it's a sad kind of thing to see this end. And it ends, it ends, uh, like, the Icelandic state ends in a whimper, right? Like, <laughs> you, you 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 end by submitting to a king that will never step up forth on your land, on your island, right? Yeah. And oh, so no. only to submit to another one like a hundred years later, and yeah, then that submission yeah. lasts for like seven hundred years. Iceland winds up like when you get the independence is independence from Denmark, you know. So yeah. uh, you know, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a very kind of, you know, like, you know, like, I think yeah, people don't, you know, necessarily, you know, want to cover it, but it's such a fascinating story to tell. And it has a lot of lessons, right? So, you know, like, well, it's you also, know, I think it speaks volumes that we have a lot of the literature written about the Viking Age, specifically about the settling of Iceland and the first Icelanders. And that was written during this this tumultuous period almost like they sensed that 
their doom was approaching. Like they could tell that what was happening at the time was go- not going to end well. So they wanted to wanted to document things while they still could before they essentially imploded. And yeah. like Snorri Sturluson writing, and he even did. He even wrote about um, you know the mythology and so forth to to try and preserve the old culture because there was there. I mean that's that's a uh, pretty calamitous when you have you know five. I mean, an island with 40,000 people and you're putting together armies with thousands of people. I mean, demographically speaking, that's like every, like you said, it's like the big family reunion. We're all going to kill each other today, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I think one thing I, I, that struck me was like, you know, I would look at the uh, say saga, like the Al saga, and uh, there would be many cases where there, like the violence, but the two uh, sides would come to kind of, Peaceful agreements like Niall and Gunner, right? Like when we're Niall and Gunner, uh, is it the, the wives are like uh, sending out, you know, you know, the like uh, people on their side to kill each other, and Niall and Gunner, like, oh, my slave got killed by your slave, you know, uh, what may, uh, we'll just make an agreement, uh, you know, whatever you think is fair, you know, and all oh, just oh, a couple of bucks, you know, and you know, every, everyone was, you know, they're happy and like. Um, and then you have a lot of these law cases, right? Like, you know, where things are, it, it almost kind of portrayed as comedy, right? Like, uh, you know, at least, uh, let's, let's resolve things that the law. And this is happening at a time when that, that, uh, very aspect of, of Icelandic system is failing, right? So it's like people are saying, Hey, remember, we could do better. Like in our past, we, we could, uh, make agreements. We could we could settle things peacefully. You know, we could stop feuds. And now, you know, like, and, and they're trying to hear. Here's an example. And but, you know, that doesn't. What they're saying doesn't seem to resonate. I think it's also a similar, you know, human propensity for thinking about the golden age. You know, it's like the time when we were at our best is always some, you know, time in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that to it too. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah, like Iceland. There's always this is a fascinating you know culture, right? Like, you know, I, I enjoy it. Like, I got, I have to kind of think of more ways. I'm kind of waiting to actually see when we like. There's a few chronicles from Iceland uh, that you know, like they're just being translated now. I'm just, I wish you know. Oh, I'd like to see you know what the, the kind of you know. I guess the monasteries you know, thought of all this, right? And hopefully, hopefully, there's some details. Hopefully, they're not like the Anglo-Saxon chronicles. They had a they had a war, or this volcano blew up this year. And that's all. Well, so, hopefully, when you went to Iceland, one of the first things you recognized immediately when you got off the plane and saw the topography is that ah, this is why they threw rocks at each other. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's all there. <laughs> It, it's, it, yeah, it's such a it's a wonderful place to you know visit. Like uh, man, like Iceland is just incredible. Like uh, for a natural beauty to look at, but you know it it's it just seems to be just oozing with history. Yeah, it is. That's why I love it. I'll be there in two weeks. Oh, nice. so well, we should probably like maybe uh, unlike the uh, Icelandic Viking Age, uh, we maybe we'll end this uh, podcast with a bang and not a whimper and uh, talk about uh, what are you working on, Peter? And is there anything that you'd like to talk about project wise or anything you'd like to promote? Oh my gosh. Uh, we, I do so much, so many things that, uh, but like with medievalist.net, um, 
we're always constantly putting out material articles. We, you know, I have a ton of writers. I don't get to write too much, but uh, we have writers. We have our, uh, a, a, a few podcasts under our belt. Like if you like medieval military history, we have Bowen Blade with uh, Kelly DeBreez and Michael Livingston. They, um, the we uh, we have the medieval podcast with Danielle Sobolski. Uh, we have our own YouTube channel. Uh, we, you know, we're trying to do everything. Uh, you know, one of the new things, and you know this very well, is that uh, Terry is you know we're creating online courses. So uh, you know, and I'm I'm really happy to be working with you uh, to do that. Like uh, you've uh, had your course on the Viking Age. This is something again we're going to be doing. Uh, fairly soon, uh, depending on when this podcast comes out. Uh, and, you know, we have kind of a, a lot of plans on to have ways that, you know, people that are interested in medieval studies can learn from each other, uh, you know, tell their stories, right? Like whether it be as a book, or as a podcast, uh, as, as courses, or, you know, just articles. So, you know, medieval stuff, you know, you know, I try to, I try, it keeps me busy. It keeps me from, you know, running amok. Well, that's good. Yeah. And thanks. I'm glad to be working with you on the online classes too. I think, uh, well, our podcast, this one we're talking right now, will we'll be coming out, what, CJ, like probably tomorrow or something. Yeah. So, as soon as I get it edited, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then, so that, yeah, class will be hopefully starting in April. But um, I did just see an email this morning from one of my students that I had them read an article that was, you know, linked up from MNET and, um, and they said, by the way, thank you for referring us to medievalist.net. There's a lot of good stuff there. And it's like, oh, well, good. Because <laughs> you're right. There is, if you're interested in the Middle Ages. So, oh, yeah. Man. Uh, isn't there always? <laughs> medievalist.net. So, about going to turn 15, uh, 15 years old in September. So, uh, you know, it's, I've, I've been thinking about it, you know, reflecting on that. You know, I think maybe we've had a, a bit of a nice influence, like on, people looking at medieval studies, learning about medieval history. So I'm, I'm very proud of it. So yeah, nice. I, was at, I was at breakfast this morning with some folks and I, I brought up this, that we're going to be recording this podcast and, and one of the people there and nobody, there's a medieval historian or you know anything like that, but just through social media, medievalist.net. Oh yeah, I know those people. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's a wide reach, but uh, I do want to interject. Uh, speaking of going out with a bang, I did want to poke a little bit of fun um, because I was reading an article on medievalist.net particularly about the Vikings. And I'm going to share my screen real quick. Uh-oh, is Peter going to get in trouble? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. What, what horrible thing that I... Uh... It's okay. If it's if it's really that... No, it's, it's funny. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, uh, I am the administrator for Viking Memes, the original one from like 12 years ago. And it's still going strong. I got like 20-something thousand people on there, which is fun. So something popped up on the article. I hope you can all see it. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I was reading through, and one of the ads uh, is basically saying, I was reading an article about slavery in the Viking Age on medievalist.net, and here's the ad that I got. Ukrainian women. Of course, oh, I texted God. this to my wife, and I said, should we buy one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. Well, it's I like just the so odd. The, you never I, I, know what you're going to get with some of the ads, but I just had to, I had to laugh at the irony behind this because it was like, you know, the ad generator doesn't know what I'm actually reading. I don't think, <laughs> but yeah. to the, to, 
you know, that's where the Vikings went for their slaves. So, you know. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, man. Well, that's a good that's a good segue there too, because actually in two weeks we're going to be talking with Dr. Leshek Gardella about Vikings in Slavic lands. So there you go. Oh my gosh! So we'll get into the the deep end on that one. Yeah. He <laughs> <is great>. yeah. <laughs> nice. They, uh, yeah, you know, people size, you know, it's it's funny. Like, yeah, uh, some of the ads, and, you know, things people see on our site. Like, I, I don't control that. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, like, there's really nothing I can do. But you know, it's 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 a fascinating like trying to run uh, a media company these days. You know, like all the little moving parts. Uh, you know, like even even you know today has been uh, meetings on this that and uh, you know, and I I want like man, I I haven't had a chance to write in like a couple of days. So. They like write anything like or post anything new on the site just because I mean you know uh, it's it's the it's the wonderful thing right like you know like if you like uh, I have a little bit of entrepreneur in me so uh, and uh, and you know just trying to uh, do that it's a really fascinating world so and just like Iceland medieval Iceland so nice I you know I, I love what I do so good well keep doing it because it's good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Peter, for coming on the show. I guess we'll wrap it up there and we'll have a couple of links added to the description, the ones that we brought up. Yeah. Uh, and then for you and me, Terry, we'll talk to everybody on the next episode in two weeks. Yep. Sounds great. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye.